This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. George Saunders, welcome to Better Reading. Nice to be here, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, George and I last spoke back in 2017, back in the days where you could be person to person at the Sydney Writers Festival. Uh, those days, unfortunately, uh, aren't back yet. But soon, we hope. But soon, I had, yeah. <laughs> I had a dream last night that it was. I've, I've been having a series of dreams where I'm uh, in a restaurant or at a party, and I realize that I don't have a mask on and it's terrible. But last this dream, for the first time, I was in a restaurant. I realized I didn't have a mask, and I said to myself, it's all right, it's all over now. And then I looked around at all these people, and I start bursting into tears in the dream because it was so nice, mm. you know, to be to be a full human being again. I mean, I think the problem with the mask, and we're very lucky here because no one's wearing them anymore. We haven't had any community cases in weeks now. What I miss was so people's good. smiles and facial expressions and the connection and the eye contact. Yeah, you realize how much information you get from the lower two thirds of the face. It's mm-hmm. really, it is. And I, I miss that. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, a middle-aged man. So I missed the... Uh, intrusive discussions with strangers, you know, where you just walk over to somebody and start talking. And it's been a very long time of just, um, you know, erring on the side of not engaging, which I, which mm-hmm. is kind of, I think it deadens the brain in a certain way. I agree. I agree. Okay. I'll finish the intro. Uh, George is the author of nine books, including Lincoln in the Barter, winner of the 2017 Man Booker Prize. 10th of December was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the inaugural Folio Prize. He has received MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships and the Penn Prize for Excellence in Short Story and was recently elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2017, he was named one of the world's 100 most influential people by Time Magazine. Now, you know, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I'm how, impressed. look what happened after they, na- after they did that. <laughs> after they named me the most influential, everything went to hell. <laughs> <laughs> For the last 20 years, George has been teaching a class on the Russian short story to his MFA students at Syracuse University. His latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, he shares a version of that class with us, offering some of what he and his students have discovered together over the years. It really is the most wonderful book, but we will get to that. Firstly, you know I'm going to go a little bit of politics. And for all you listeners out there, because, you know, I get criticised for this, this is only a very, very short part of this podcast. When we last spoke, Trump had just come in, and I remember you were writing for The New Yorker. You were, I think at the time or just before then, you had followed the campaign trail. And he had been in a couple of months because I think we spoke in the April and he was elected in the January. And you said to me that you trusted the system. Mm. Mm. Did I? <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I do. I did. I was right. I, I think, you know, the system, I, our experience, my experience here was that it just barely, it's like, it was like a pair of pants that was just hanging on by one hip, you know, 
And um, I think history will show a few really, really heroic moves at the last minute that kept us from going over into something really unimaginable. So I, I think the system did hold. But for one, I'm just amazed by how much of that system was uh, unspoken. You know, it's not actually in the laws. It's by consensus. It's by common agreement. And that re- I think we got really close to the edge in those last few months. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now, you know, what's really strange is the people I know who are Trump supporters have been have fallen very quiet. And I'm very happy not to be talking politics. And I think it's it's almost like when a bear that's wounded goes into the cave and tries to heal. I think that's what I feel is happening. Of course, I, I've been mm-hmm. wrong before, but... And, and mm. Biden is a wonderful presence, you know. He's just exactly what we need right now, and I, I'm so, so grateful that we got him. I agree. So calming. And do you know what I haven't missed? I haven't missed the ugly noise, you know. I haven't missed any of that. It's uh. terrible. It's this calmness. But do you know what's interesting, George, is that when COVID hit, and, and you probably know this, people took solace in reading. And that, if we're going to look at the positives of a pandemic and the positives of an an almost autocrat and a despot, what people turned to for solace was reading. I think it's the same in the US, but here reading, particularly reading fiction and nonfiction, has really, the industry is buoyant. Bookshops are buoyant. People are buying books. People are reading books. People are engaging with authors. And that has been, I think, one of the huge positives that have come out of that crisis. Yes, here too. I, I I think it's you know here it felt a little bit like if you were in a a family vehicle and everybody was fighting, and then the car almost goes over the cliff. You take a minute and you say, wait a minute, what were we doing? You know, what what do we value? Where should we look for for solace? And I think you know just as somebody who was writing this book during all that, it's kind of good you know to be reminded that you can possess clarity, you can identify truth, you know, you can analyze, you can. Uh, participate in that communion between reader and writer. All that stuff is so important. And I I think the same thing is happening here. Mm, mm. The first couple of months, and I don't know if this happened to you, I was completely distracted. I was in such, it was such the unknown, the first couple of months of COVID and, you know, the disaster of what was happening in the US and what was going to happen here. And I couldn't concentrate. And the only thing I could read at the time were short stories. So I picked up my Raymond Carver. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I had um, the opposite. When I get panicked, which is most of my life, I work is a great comfort to me. So if I get, you know, if, if I'm sure at the end of the world, I'll be up in my study because that's, it's not really hiding, but it's, it's, I think of it as cultivating whatever positive qualities might help you get through the disaster. So when this was all going on, I was, up, I have a little writing shut up above the house and I was just up there with the Russians, you know, and it really, if nothing else, I came down in a better mood. I came down, you know, convinced that my mind was still relatively positive and all that. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Okay, let's. I want to talk about the book. <laughs> I want to talk about this. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but we can talk about it again because we both don't remember. But one of my favourite quotes, because I speak to writers, you know, almost every day, one of my favourite, favourite, all-time favourite writing quotes, and this was in my head when I was reading your book, uh, is from John le Carre, who um, I think died. Uh, late last year, was it? Or earlier this year. Anyway, John Lucare, and you will be familiar with him. But anyway, years ago, he was in Sydney. Great, great writer. Years ago, he was in Sydney and he was doing this, you know, author talk and it was wonderful and I was so lucky to be there. And somebody asked him about writing and he said, there's, there's two ways to construct a story. And he said, it's as simple as you can write the cat sat on the mat or you can write, the cat sat on the dog's mat. 
Mm. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that reminds me of that. The, I can't remember who it was now, but the, you know, the king died and the queen died. What, what is that one? I'm forgetting it now. I was in my own book and I forgot it. Yeah, yeah, I know king it. And died, I know it from... then the, oh, the king died, then the queen died. The king died, then the queen died of grief. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly the same, isn't yeah. it? And, you know, often you can pick that in a book in the first couple of pages, can't you? <laughs> if it's just the cat's out on the mat. So this book, this book is a masterclass, I think, in writing, but it's also a masterclass in living, loving. And you said something recently that I heard, and I'm just going to repeat it, that most of our life we're in our heads. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. And our thoughts are private and we're deluded. <laughs> and that, I think that that's, was, I'm speaking for myself. That, yeah. <laughs> no, I, it, it, I can relate to it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, it, you know, it, I've been reading some neuroscience and, that, and it's true. We, we, uh, the brain is there to keep us alive and healthy and, and functioning. So it, it makes a series of scale models that get slightly uh, you know, edited by by sensory input, but that model has built into it the idea that we're at the center of everything. And I think in, in my model, it has built into it the idea that I'm never ending. You know, I'll, I'll be here for the next six thousand years, and um, so that's I think that's the delusion. And then, of course, you over there have your your mind going, and we you know our our two mind states are not identical, and they both have that core delusion. And then. You know, we both want the same watermelon, and hilarity ensues. Mm, it does. Okay, so tell me about tell me about the book, and tell me about uh, why it is that you decided to put this together. Sure. Well, I'd been teaching this class in the Russian short story for twenty years at Syracuse, and the whole premise is that these are uh, six, eighteen of the best writers in America, best young writers, and the, the in the class we have permission to kind of step around the usual academic approach and just try to look at craft and how how things work. Um, so I've, I've been teaching that class, and my schedule is changing now a little, so I don't teach it anymore, uh, and don't teach as much anymore. And I just uh, came back from the. Lincoln tour, and uh, this it occurred to me how much I liked myself as a teacher, how, how much I like the person I am when I'm teaching. You know, I, I'm I'm um, a little less self-centered, and my whole purpose is to try to light these kids up and help them with their uh, work. And of course, I identify with them because they're young writers and they're sometimes neurotic and agonizing over how to find their voice and so on. So um, when we use these Russian stories, it's just a um, I like the I like the voice in which I speak when I'm talking to them and uh, how hard I'm willing to to bend over backwards to help them understand why these are good stories. Uh, I like the moments when they resist and say they're not good stories and we get to tussle about that. So I think I just had a uh, a feeling that that voice wasn't really present in my other writing so much. You know that that kind of uh, teacherly voice. So I, I I and I also had a bit of a feeling that I wanted before I started the next big project to kind of touch base with the. The fundamentals, you know, why why do I love stories? Do I still love them? How how do they work? And um, just to make sure that I didn't use up this next X number of years in some kind of half baked way, you know, but mm. to kind of like go back to where the love began. Mm. Do you know, for me, um, you know, and I'm not a writer, but it was a lesson for me in how uh, reading fiction, how we learn through reading fiction. I mean, it's a simple approach to it, but it is exactly that. Because often people think that, you know, because fiction is made up, there's not the 
the perception of the author or who the author is or, you know, whereas I completely d- disagree with that. But every one of those stories that you give examples of tells me so much, and particularly short stories, which I really love, how concise in a story somebody can cover in so few words how they can cover almost a lifetime of history, of politics, of feelings, of thought, of love. Yes, and also you can see a person's compressed persona in a story, you know, in in a way that um, is really beautiful. The way I approached this book was to say, well, you know, really when we think about reading in the simplest way, what do we do? We pick up a book or a story. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, we're, you know, most of us are pretty hopeful, we're generous, we're, we're a receptive audience. Then you read the first sentence, and already, if you know, you could learn so much just by comparing the state of your mind before you started reading to the state of your mind after that first sentence. You know, actually, the whole act of reading is contained in that. Are you happier? You know, are you interested? Has it pulled you forward? And for, for my students, the important question is, if, it, if sentence one makes you want to read sentence number two, why exactly? You know, and it's actually really, it's, it's very hard to answer that question. You know, you kind of know it when you feel it. But part of what we're trying to do is partly trying to articulate that. Why? Why do you, you know, why do you like this story better than the next or so on? Uh, but more importantly, we're trying to get the individual writer to internalize it for her own purposes. Now, that's a pretty complicated thing. But, it, for example, I know that I am always grading sentences on efficiency as I read them. Partly because I feel that's a way of conveying respect when someone's efficient. So knowing that about myself, I can then sort of give myself a ticket and say, all right, well, you value efficiency. Now, how do you edit efficiency into your stories? You know, so it's, it's that kind of a process. And I, I'm really excited about it because it's very, very difficult to say why this, you, you know, yeah. I do an exercise at Syracuse where I take, I take a, these four beginnings of stories, four, uh, four first paragraphs that the students will not know. They're kind of from obscure journals. And I just say, uh, rank these for me, and I leave the room. And, of course, because they're young writers, they have no trouble doing that. And then the exercise is to say, why did you choose this as your favorite? You know, uh, And don't give me an intellectual answer. Give me a visceral answer. Why, why does that one ring your bell? And number four, why do you hate it so much? You know, And that's really valuable for writers because they find out they have really strong opinions that maybe normally they would tend to suppress. When you're talking about efficiency, you're not talking about, say, Jonathan Franzen, for instance. You know, I mean, they're big books and I love every single word and every single sentence. You're talking about efficiency in the language, not necessarily in the story. Well, I'd say efficiency according to the purpose. So, so David yeah. Foster Wallace was somebody who I thought was highly efficient, even though, you know, his, his purpose was sometimes to digress charmingly. And so within that model, he's very efficient. And it's funny, you can, you can tell when someone digresses inefficiently, there's a lack of control and a lack of respect. But when David would do it, you felt he knew just what he was doing. And so it's a little bit like, you know, if, if a singer, you know, a singer was playing a singer in a movie and she had to sing off pitch, kind of like Meryl Streep had to do in that recent movie, that's still efficiency. You know, it, it's, it's so, so yeah, I think um, efficiency mm. is doing that which you intend to do, I guess. Okay, got it. <laughs> People, because, you know, we're in the business, better readings in the business and in recommending books, you know, and um, I often say to people, you know, the reason why we recommend books is because that we think people should read is because no one's ever asked me what not to read, right? People are always looking for that, <laughs> for a story to read. They're not looking for a book that you don't want them to that would read. Be a good, <laughs> that would be a good podcast. 
<laughs> yeah, what not to read, right? Okay, so that's that's Worst our reading. <laughs> and so very often I think about after I've read a book, what is it that got me? What is it that engaged me? And I think you spoke about this mm. recently. Is convincing the reader, writing a character that is authentic. Yeah, I mean, for me, it, you know, there's a, a magical moment when uh, the words stop being words and and they become. I guess, image, you know, you're reading something, and you're, okay, I'm reading a story, it's nine o'clock on Monday, and suddenly you're in a sled and a snowstorm. That happens because of some magic of the language. And again, it's very difficult to, you know, reduce it. But that, I think, is the moment most of us are looking for. And I think there's another part that I wrote about in the book, which is a story does not have to be perfect to charm us. And in fact, often, I mean, no story is perfect. But just like a person, you know, if you have a friend who's very loquacious, and very opinionated, that's part of her charm, you know, and there are probably compensatory features that she has. Or, you know, sometimes she'll get on a roll and she'll talk and talk and talk and have an opinion, and then suddenly she'll realize it and she'll be all ears, you know, for you. So a story, it's interesting that a story has to be a little excessive, and then in a sense what it does is it redeems its excesses. And that that is very interesting because of the corollaries with personality, you know. Um, nothing in this world is perfect, but sometimes things are uh, a net plus, I guess we would say. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I want to know why you chose seven Russian stories. Why is it? Was that the topic or was it that you thought that these were key stories in learning how to write? Or was it just simply seven stories that did it for you? It was more the last thing. It, it was actually, you know, I, I was hired to teach at Syracuse and I'd never taught grad students before. And sort of at the last minute, they said, oh, yeah, and you have to teach this 20 or 30 person forms class, which is literature for writers. What, what do you want to teach? And I thought, oh, my God, I don't know. I, you know, and I've been reading some Tolstoy, really loving it and actually just had a desire to read more Russians of that period. So I just designed a syllabus on which probably half the things I hadn't even read. I just put them in there to so that I would read them. And that was 20 years ago. So really, the answer is that I started teaching these stories kind of by accident, uh, and part, you know, partly by inclination. And then, you know, the beautiful process of just teaching them over and over again to these uh, always great young writers, uh, you, you know, you learn the material, because if you don't, it's uh, not good, you know, when, when you get mm -hmm. uh, 20 really brilliant young kids. Mm -hmm. So I think it was mostly just, I looked up at 62 years old and thought, wow, I this class has 40 stories in it, and I know what the, the most teachable 10 are. And 
So let's start with those. And then because of length considerations, I had to take it down to seven. But really, I, I suppose really you could have written this, I could have written this book with any seven stories really, you know, that are above a certain level. Because the book for me was more about the form than it is about those particular stories or about the Russians. Hmm. It made me think too, when you're reading, and this is why, you know, we have to open ourselves up to fiction from all over the world, is how much you learn, not just about the culture, but behaviour, about the environment, about the nuance of the difference in culture. I was reading somewhere recently, I think it was social media somewhere, where, you know, there were some words, like say, that existed in French that described a particular scenario that we don't even have as a translation in English. There's no such word for it. And I've got a Lebanese-Australian background, and I often hear my mother say things that I think, oh, I don't think there's an English translation to that. And it's interesting how... Mm -hmm. That comes out in fiction, right? Oh yeah, I mean, as as the writer of fiction, it's there are um, you know you sweat over those tiny meanings that that are not at all overt. They're just you know the sound of a certain word that you as a as an American you know connotes lower class origin. And if somebody in translation chose a slightly more upscale word, the whole effect is ruined. You know, so yeah, I think that's really true. Mm. I mean, with this book, these are. The translation. So I don't actually know how these stories sound in Russian. I have no idea, you know. So we're just doing the best we can with what we what we have. Mm. And it's the magic of translation too. I mean, it needs to be right. So I want to go back to you as a writer because a lot of our stories on this conversations, if you like, on this podcast is how you came to writing. And I, I realised that I didn't really know much about your past. So talk to me about how it is that you came to writing. Where did you grow up? I, I want to know how you became one of the 100 most influential people <laughs> in the world through <laughs> writing. It was a bribe. It was, I, I paid him. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think it is just, it's a great place to be because you have bought fiction to influence people if you know what I mean. So I think you, you can take well, credit for that. Yeah, no, it's okay, I, I will. Uh, but I didn't cause the pandemic. That, that, that is yeah. influence. <laughs> no. um, I was born in Texas and we I grew up on the south side of Chicago and kind of, a, I, I guess, a, a working class background. Is that where Michelle Obama um, grew up? Didn't know. Yes, yes. A different, I mean, a different, I, I'm not sure exactly where she lived, but yeah, the south side is, is yeah. Uh, yeah. I, then I, you know, I, I think that the main thing that we had was a lot of storytelling, a lot of joking, a lot of sarcasm. And so there was a sense, uh, kind of like you get in Dubliners, you know, that in that world, language was actually pretty powerful. You could you could cut somebody off at the knees with it. You could praise somebody. You could uh, joke your way out of bad situations. So I think I, I heard someone say that, you know, that's a, a writer is someone who in childhood found out that language was powerful. And that was definitely true for me. But I didn't know any writers and didn't know anybody who, no artist, no one who made a living that way. And it was just assumed that I would work for a living. And I had a nun in third grade give me a a Johnny Tremaine. It's a a, a YA novel by Esther Forbes. And that was a really big experience because she thought well enough of me to give me this difficult book. And I totally responded to it. I totally got it. It's a real stylistic masterpiece. So those were in play. Uh, but it wasn't until maybe college, I went to engineering school, and I just wasn't that good at it, and it didn't feel like home. Uh, and I started reading on the sly, reading Hemingway and Kerouac and Thomas Wolfe, and that's when it really hit me that I didn't want to do anything else. I didn't have, the, I didn't have enough motivation for anything else to, to, to do it my whole life. And so then in, in this kind of inefficient working class way, I started just kind of sidling over to writing, uh, went to work in the oil fields in Asia, 
And then actually, in a strange way, I got sick there, which then propelled me out of the oil business. And uh, I think at a critical moment, I thought, well, you know, you've got this gift of being unemployed. <laughs> uh, maybe now is the time to look into writing, you know. So it was kind of like they say um, – I think in one of the Hemingway books, it says, how did, somebody says, how did you go broke? And the person says, gradually and then all at once. That was kind of how <laughs> I became a writer, just moving over to this comfortable thing over the years. But the big turning point was when I admitted humor in. I, I had always been a very Hemingway-esque, stoic, serious you know, writer and couldn't do much in that mode. And at one desperate point in my 30s, I just suddenly became you know, funny, which I'd always been in real life. And then it was sort of like a floodgate opened and I knew what to do. Because you were being yourself. Yes. Yes. Tell me what the first book you wrote and how you got it published. Well, I wrote several books that were not published and which were important in their own ways. But, but uh, it's a book called Civil Warland and Bad Decline. And it's a, a group of hysterical short stories. And what happened was I wrote one and sent it to the New Yorker and they rejected it nicely and said, send some more, which I did. And finally they published one. And that was a big deal. Here, you know, here the New Yorker is, um, I've heard someone say it's harder to get a story in the New Yorker than it is to get a novel published. So when that story was published, I got an agent and then another four years passed and I had the, the, the first book ready to go. And that, but I was, you know, I was 38 at that point. I wasn't a, a baby. So uh, it was kind of a long road be- before that. But I interviewed um, a short fiction writer. His name's Adam Thompson, and I think he's in his 40s. Um, He's an Indigenous Australian living in Tasmania. And it was really the most wonderful book, and you should look it up because he's a great writer. But anyway, it was the first book he's had published. And I said, Adam, how is it that you came to being 40 and being published only now? And he said, Cheryl, I have been a storyteller all my life. It's just the first time Mm -hmm. that I put pen to paper. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I was different. That's a beautiful answer. My, I was a writing for a long time, but I never could figure out how to get my personality aligned with the, the words on the page. There was a lot of falseness in what I was writing, a lot of, um, I would say now condescension, where my thought was I, for example, I, uh, one of those books that wasn't published was about working in Asia. So my stance was, all right, I've been in, in Asia, unlike so many of you. Now sit at my feet and absorb my knowledge. Such a boring enterprise for everybody, you know. It took quite a long time, an amazingly long time, for me to to sort of know how in prose I could be authentic. And and for me, the trick was to say, um, finally, the whole game is I'm over here. You, my reader, is over there. I have to respect you like as I would a friend. You know, when you talk to your friend – you don't use falsely elevated language and you don't repeat yourself over and over and you don't, you know, say something that he is transparently false. You, you, you're valuing your friend in every utterance. That was where I finally broke through because I thought, okay, if I was talking to a dear friend about a difficult situation, as, as the stories are, I would be a little sarcastic. I'd be a little fast. I'd be uh, very efficient in my telling. Uh, I would trust that she knows as much about the world as I do. And then we'd have something going on, you know? And that that kind of an uh, interchange is very responsive moment to moment. You know, after the first page, you, my reader, is in a certain place. I know where it is, and I'm responding to that. So it's kind of a call and response. It's very respectful, I would say. And once I thought of it that way, which is not different than a person standing in a comedy club, really, you know, or, or a person playing music... 
once I realized that, I thought, oh, okay, I can do that. I can be marginally entertaining, and I can certainly notice what I've done in the first three pages and then make the fourth page so as to respond to the first three. It sounds so simple, but before that, it was more of a just a, a blind performance. I'm just going to do this dance, and you're going to like it. Now, suddenly, I'm looking at you to see, does she like it? And that's a that's a huge difference. You know, one of the greatest moments for me this year, it happened this year, but as part of what has happened to all of us in the last year, and can you believe it's been over a year, is Amanda Gorman and poetry. You know, when I saw poetry being performed at the Super Bowl, I thought, wow, I don't think Australia is quite there yet. But that to me was (laughs) a monumental turning point to the year that we've had. Yeah. And it, it ought to be performed at the Super Bowl. You know, I remember hearing some recordings of, of poetry readings in, in Russia that were done in 20,000-person stadium, and they were there to hear the poetry, you know. So I, I do, I aspire to that. You know, why, why shouldn't our literary arts be speaking to everybody? You know, that, that's, that was the idea back in the cave, you know, when, when I stood up at the campfire and said, I'm going to tell you something. That wasn't you know, people weren't giving me a grant for the arts. They weren't, they weren't indulging the original storyteller. They, they were uh, of the belief they would get something essential from him that would make their life better and might even save their lives. So I, I like that aspiration very much. And she's a wonderful poet, and she's absolutely compelling. And she's, she's speaking about things that are urgent, you know. She's speaking about things that are urgent in a very efficient way, you know. I was, it's like short, short stories, isn't it? It was, she was, her communication style, not just in her words, in her appearance and in the way she delivered it was just mesmerizing on every level, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yes. And, and we're capable of that, you know, and I think we're on the receiving end, we're so hungry for it. You know, we know mm. that something is strange about this life and, it, and it's fleeting, you know, and, and it seems to be this strange melange of beauty and horror, you know, and, and yet for the most part, we get up in the morning and we just say, well, don't want to miss the bus, you know, or, and, and there's a lot of, speaking for myself, a lot of denial that's just the minute you get up, you start the denial and that's okay. And maybe it's necessary, but every now and then I just get the feeling like, why well, I wish, I wish I could be completely alive for a couple of minutes, you know, with the beauty, with the horror. And I think in, in a way, that's what, that's why I turned to short stories, both reading and writing them, is to just peel away that habituation for a couple seconds and be in direct touch with something, you know, franker and bigger than, than me. Mm. I've got to let you go in a minute. But a couple of things that you have valued through this time and a couple of things that you have missed and want to go back to. Give me that. Uh, well, one thing I valued was I read uh, Don Quixote for the first time, and I, yeah, I, wow. I started a few years ago and didn't have the patience. And in and in the pandemic, I just was every night I'd hop in bed and you know go to Spain, and what a reward it was to you know get to the end of that and and just I miss him every day. I miss I miss Cervantes and I miss Don Quixote. Um, and you know the other thing that has been kind of lovely is I've got clusters of friends all over, and we've gotten really energetic about text exchanges. And that uh, I never would have thought that that would be uh, you know a new form of, of of friendship and intimacy, but that really has been. I miss you know I, I have these I don't know if other people are experiencing this, but I have these little bursts of nostalgia for the strangest places. Just alleyways, or uh, you know being underneath an awning on a rainy night outside a, a bar. Or um, just, I mean, and, and I'll, I'll remember some little obscure place in Brooklyn for no reason. Just It's almost like the brain is saying, I have to have you remember this so you don't forget it. So I, I miss that. I miss the, um, the variety of smells and, and uh, sensations. And, and um, we've been pretty, 
pretty rigid about quarantine. So, uh, you know, we're, we're not getting that. Uh, and, and really, the, heart, the hardship for us has just been twofold. I haven't, we haven't seen our daughter or my parents in a year. And that is that mm-hmm. I resent. You know, I, that, there's something about that that I, I'm not going to live down. But, but I, think, I, I think in the end, it's going to be, for me, uh, it, it's a little bit like a retreat. You know, it's been a bit of a retreat and a mm-hmm. feeling of just saying, all right, as we go forward into the rest, what, what do we want to leave behind? You know, I'm not going to travel as much as I used to, for sure, because I haven't traveled at all. And my writing is, I mean, my God, I'm so productive. <laughs> so mm-hmm. how about you? What, do, what are your answers to those questions? No, I was just thinking about that while you were speaking. I mean, we have been very lucky. So we were only in lockdown for, I think it was 12 weeks, very early on. And since then, life has been quite free. But, you know, I, I've got an elderly mother, so I have been very, very careful like you. I haven't been um, going to bars and restaurants. So I miss the spontaneous interaction with people. And for those 12 weeks, I live alone and I have never felt lonely because I've got a huge family, huge loving family and huge network of friends. But for those first 12 weeks, I felt for the very first time in my life, completely lonely and isolated. And that was a very strange feeling mm, for me. Mm. I took to Carver. I took to reading short stories. I had I had to find another way and that was hard. And what I have loved and what I missed, and I think we talked about this earlier, is because I live next door to a park, I've got an elderly dog like you do and I take him out twice a day. And for that time when we were all frightened, nobody was making eye contact. People were just rushing by. You know, I wasn't, mm. you know, just that that thing where you walk past someone and you just smile. I, I miss that so much and that's back now for us and I love it. And maybe I'm overusing it. I think people are avoiding me in the park because I'm <laughs> stopping to talk to everyone. <laughs> but, that lady is looking at me. She keeps staring at me. <laughs> that's right. She keeps smiling. She's a weirdo. But it is the human aspects of it that I have missed most definitely. Yeah. You know, I read a book by Lisa Feldman Barrett, and I, if I'm remembering it right, she said that that kind of thing is really key to your brain health. The, the, yeah. the, 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 the processing that we do of faces and the, the talking that we do, it's actually not, it's actually very, very uh, important for our health, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah. You can't it's, underestimate it's it, can crazy. you? crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Georgie, you're working on something uh, you at know, the moment. I, w- I want to say, I want to say that I'm sorry. I wanted to say that Carver would have loved that that you <laughs> turned to him. And his, we we used to know uh, we we so, used to see him in Syracuse when I was a student. He, uh, my wife knew him a little better than I do, but um, I, I think he would have really loved that that he was a source of comfort to you in this in this time. Thank you. Hey, listen, are you working on something? Yes, I um, I was. I've got a book of stories that I'm wrapping up, and uh, and it was a, a really amazing to, to have studied these Russian stories so closely, really gave a rocket boost to my own work. I'm so excited about the form. And um, so that's, that'll be, I have, I have to finish that by October and I think it'll be a year or two before it comes out. But then, you know, for the first time in a long time, I'm going to have kind of a clear slate, um, you know, a, a book under the belt and just a chance to think what's next, you know. I know. As a writer, that's it. You're always going. The mind's always going. Okay, I'm going. I'm just going to let you go with this this last quote. And I can't work out where I got this from. So I'm sorry to the person that said it, but it was. It's not me. It's <laughs> talking about the book and uh, a swim in a pond in the rain. And I think it's a she. And she says it's a masterclass in how to be human. Unfailingly, often thrillingly illuminating. Isn't that beautiful? That's, I think that was my mother. <laughs> that was my mom. It was not. <laughs> I was just going to say, for me, that was, the fun of the book was, was to um, uh, 
find it starting out to be about the Russians and then turning out to be about a lot of other things. And it was really a, a, a deep pleasure to write it. I miss, miss it every day. Mm. You're wonderful. You're absolutely wonderful. And you, you influence my life almost every day. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, that's so nice. You're wonderful too, Cheryl. Thank you for spending some time with me. Love to everybody in Australia. You, you wise and beautiful country. You. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.